Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. just sung the words that our hearts hunger for you and we pray that you would make those words true in us God we also come in honesty confessing before you that so often our hearts really hunger for things that are not you and when we don't get them our hearts despair and we feel empty. Show us, Holy Spirit, that you are the one that you made our souls hungry for and that only you can satisfy. Lord, teach us to follow you rather than to ask you to follow us. Be God to us and help us to be your people. In Jesus' name. morning. If you are new to our church, my name is Dave, and uh, I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here at the church. And this morning, we're going to start a new series. And it's one of those series that uh, normally when I plan a series, I know exactly how many messages it's going to be. I know what date we're going to do everything. It's been strange that I can't seem to nail down what this series is going to look like. So it is still in flux. It could be eight messages, five messages, I don't know. But we're going to look at the topic of prayer. And I want to start um, just by asking you guys a quick poll. How many of you, just raise your hands if this is true of you, would say that prayer is the primary way that you regularly connect to and feel close to God? Okay, great, great. If that's true of you, I want to learn from you. Because I'm coming to realize that um, that's not true of me. I pray, and the cloudy thing for the pastor is praying a lot is part of my vocation. But I'm wondering if prayer is really my breathing, my heartbeat, when I'm off the clock, when it's just me standing before God, not as Pastor Dave, but as his adopted son. So I'm going to preach you this series along with uh, Pastor Frank and Pastor Jared, largely out of selfish motivation, that I want very much to grow in prayer. I want to break through to another place of understanding and practicing what it is to talk to and listen to God and be guided by him. And I want to call the series, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. <coughs> and that's also going to be the title of the opening message this morning. I draw that title from the first line of Luke chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 4, but along with verses 1 to 4 in Luke 11, uh, we're going to also interact a little bit with Matthew chapter 6, because the same basic teaching is expanded a little bit in the other text. And here's what Luke 11, 1 through 4 says. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. In verse 1, it says that uh, one day, as was his custom, Jesus was in a particular place and a particular time, and what he was doing was praying. And it's evident that his disciples were watching him and probably eavesdropping on him, because as soon as he's done, they intercept him, 
and they ask him a question. One of them, probably speaking on behalf of all of them, says to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I want you to understand that for a bunch of guys who grew up Jewish, that's a really weird request to make. Because the Jewish people were steeped in prayer. There were many, many prayers that they memorized that came directly out of Scripture. There was a prayer for every occasion. Prayer permeated the life of the Jewish people in the days of Jesus. And so for a Jewish person to ask someone else, teach us to pray is a really weird thing, especially if you're an adult and you've been praying all your childhood and all your life. So what could be meant by this request? Lord, teach us to pray. It very definitely was not the mechanics of prayer. They weren't asking, how does this work now? Do we close our eyes, open our eyes? Do we kneel? Do we stand? What words do we use? They weren't asking, teach us the mechanics of how to do this activity called prayer. But there was something about the way they watched Jesus pray that felt very different than all the other leaders they saw praying. And in fact, Jesus had this, he brought out this reaction in a lot of people. When he preached, the crowds would say, it's weird. We've heard preaching before, but this guy preaches differently. He preaches like somebody who knows that he has authority. He preaches like when he's saying stuff, he's not just trying to persuade or give us a bit different picture. He's speaking as though God has the right to speak to his people with authority. And it was the same way with prayer. When they watched and listened to Jesus pray, they said, we've heard hundreds of religious leaders pray, but it never quite sounded or felt like what we watch when we watch you pray. There was something about the way he did it that made them realize they had a lot left to learn about what it is to pray. And so they asked him, will you teach us? And in response, Jesus, here's what he says. And in Matthew 6, where he expands this prayer, he says, this is how you should pray. Now, what, what you should notice about that is he's not saying these are the words I want you to mechanically recite because as Jewish converts to Christianity, they did not need to be given yet one more memorized prayer. They had hundreds of them in their repertoire. They did not need yet another one. What he was saying is not this is what you should pray, but this is how you should pray. In other words, what he goes on to give, we have come in tradition in the church to call the Lord's Prayer. And strangely, ironically, I think, we've used it very differently than he intended. We've used it as like an incantation a ritual prayer that we recite over and over. And I'm not saying that's the worst thing we could do. There is a theology built in this prayer that's good to reinforce. But I don't believe Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer so we could just mindlessly repeat it over and over and over as though this prayer has some magical power. He gave us that prayer to tell us, you know what's different about me when I pray? When I pray, I pray with a certain posture, an attitude, a frame of mind that this Lord's Prayer reveals, and it's how I want you to pray. I think prayer is the one spiritual activity that most clearly reveals what you think God is. It most clearly reveals how real God is to you. So that's part of the reason why I'm feeling a little convicted as I write this series is, if I find that naturally my heart doesn't gravitate towards prayer, that alarms me in that it's beginning to reveal something about the way I see God in my heart of hearts. And that's what I want to see grow and change and come alive, is I want to see God in a way that evokes in my heart and yours the natural desire to pray, to talk to him, to listen to him, not as a matter of religious duty, but because Somehow, when I pray to God, my heart feels alive. I see him. And so I want to look at three key things that come out of this prayer. You could turn this one prayer into an entire series, but I don't want to treat it that way. I I want to just show you a few lines in this prayer that reveal something about Jesus' posture and attitude. And it's how we ought to also be thinking and feeling whenever we kneel to pray. The first is how he starts. He says, pray, our Father. And I think that's an expression of intimacy. 
For the followers of Jesus Christ, every time we pray, we must not think of God only as the high and mighty, transcendent God above all things, but because of what Jesus did to draw God close to us and us close to God, in Christ, every time we pray, we must also think of God who is near, who is intimate, who is for us not just a general to his troops or a king to his subjects, but for us, always because of Christ, God is Father, someone close, someone intimate, someone near, not somebody impossibly far away and unknowable and distant. I think the starting point of every person's prayer life is what we, how we regard God. And think about this. Most of the time, we close our eyes when we pray. Not everybody does that, but it's been my practice since childhood to close my eyes when I pray. And I was taught as a child, the reason we do that is because when I see the world around me, I see familiar, distracting things everywhere. But when I close my eyes, my mind can begin to focus on my picture, my conception of who I'm talking to. And I think that's really important. Because without that component of prayer, prayer is just Harry Potter reciting words that are supposed to do something. Right? Expelliarmus. Stupefy. And... With Harry Potter, whether he believes it or not, the words themselves, just the utterance of them, carry something. It's the way I would hear so often prayers in Buddhist temples when I was in Korea, the same line repeated a thousand times in a single day. Until the the monk entered an almost trance-like state where his brain was no longer functioning, but he was just imploring over and over until his heart was convinced. What Jesus says is when you pray, the most important first step is, what do you think God is? How do you conceive him? Who are you talking to when you pray? And I'm not just talking about a visual picture, but who is the person on the other end of that line, and how is he hearing the things you're saying? How does he feel about you? How do you expect he will respond to the things that you say and ask of him? That's why it's so comforting to me that the very first thing Jesus says is when you close your eyes and pray to God, the first concept that must grab your heart is that he is my father. He's my father. That's a little tricky because that word doesn't evoke warm feelings for everyone. For some people, the word father is a very difficult word. It's fraught with tension and pain, regret. Some of you, your whole life has been negatively shaped by your earthly father. And if that's the case, I understand how challenging it is to hear again and again in the church that God is to be your heavenly father. But rather than comparing to your earthly father, I think one way we can think about it is God wants very badly to redeem that word for you. To tell you that maybe your earthly father, in all his brokenness, did the best he could, but he couldn't do it very well. But your heavenly father is going to show you what a father can be. We're not just ants walking around on little anthills to him. But we are, whenever we pray, whenever we approach him, his beloved children adopted because he wanted us. Listen to the powerful words of Romans 8.15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, listen, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now, we call him Abba Father. You know what's weird to me is that Jesus prayed at all. I mean, that's a weird concept to me. He is God himself. And yet he spent so many hours of his short, limited earthly life by himself in a hidden corner, praying. Doesn't that strike you as odd that the Son of God, who for eternity past had enjoyed deep communion with God, it's like you have eternity past to be in the deepest fellowship with your Father. What's left to say? Oh, I was going to tell you, oh, wait, I said that 80 million years ago, never mind. I mean, what could be left to say? And if you take conversation primarily as a transactional thing, we're communicating, passing back information, then it's silly for Jesus to pray because what is there left 
to say that he doesn't already know, that the Father hasn't already heard. So the very fact that Jesus spent so much of his short earthly life praying reveals something very important about the purpose of prayer. It is not simply to transact words, to pass back communication like some some divine telegraph. But the purpose of prayer is, in Jesus' mind, first and foremost, to commune with a father he loves. If that's been a missing component of prayer for us, it's no wonder we find it hard to be enthusiastic about prayer. Because let's face it, some of the things you pray for and I pray for, we've prayed for for like 10 years and nothing's happened. Lord, please do this for me. 10 years later, you're getting sick of saying it and you're wondering if this transaction is busted. Like, Can you even hear me on the other end of this? Have you ever had that experience of being on the phone with someone on a cell phone and you're talking for like five minutes and you realize there's, there's just dead air and you're like, When did I lose the connection? I've been talking, and I don't know at what point they stopped hearing me. And that's the way it sometimes feels in prayer. If that's all prayer is, it's deadening to the soul. But what Jesus reveals is he spent so much of his time in prayer because he loved and found comfort and peace and support just being with the Father. Isn't it interesting that the night before his crucifixion, knowing the full horror of the next day, and we know what that feels like just a little bit, if the next day you have a really bad job interview, if you have an encounter with someone you really don't want to have an encounter with, if you have a doctor's appointment for like a colonoscopy, and you're like, I don't, no me gusta, I don't want to go to that appointment tomorrow, and you're dreading it. You know what it feels like to be full of anxiety the night before. Who did Jesus choose to spend that last night talking to. He takes his three closest disciples with him. He goes to the garden. They're like, what? We're going to talk? He goes, no, you, you guys just sit here and talk to God. I'm going to go be with my father for most of the night. On the worst night of his life, who does he want to talk to and listen to? Who does he want to spend time with? He chooses his father. So there's always going to be things we'd rather do or that we could be doing besides prayer. And for the person who's efficiency-driven, prayer is really hard because every time you kneel to pray, there's always something else that's pulling at your mind, demanding your attention and your focus. And often we will give in to that and we will be busy rather than in God's presence. But when we choose to pray, we will begin to receive the peace that our hearts are longing for. We're so busy, we feel all the time like there's never stillness. There's no real peace for me. But when we choose to hit the pause button and pray, that peace begins to enter our hearts. And when we choose not to pray, the peace leaks out of us. That's the state that a lot of people, I think, today live in constantly. Here's the interesting thing. We're so used to, as Christians, we're so used to referring to God as our Father. We think that's just the thing. But, you know, for the Jews of Jesus' day, it wasn't a thing. The Jewish people didn't regularly refer to God as our Father. They, they did use the word Father as an analogy for what God is. But when they addressed God, it was always in, in terms of transcendence, of how great he was, how supreme he was, how above all others he was. And that's a good thing. That's right, that God is great. But it wasn't until Jesus arrived on the scene and began to call out to God primarily as Father, and this just it would cause gasps. He didn't just call him Father, he called him Daddy, Abba. You know how in Korean there's a, a, an honorific term for Father, and there's also a, a familiar term, and that word sounds similar in so many languages. In Korean we say Appa. In Aramaic Hebrew it's Abba. Here it's Papa. I don't know what, but it's interesting how there's always in every language one term for my father and another for daddy. And he began to talk to God as daddy, and this was shockingly familiar, intimate. People were like, what are you doing? You don't talk to God like that. And he said to them, yes, I do. And he taught his disciples to do the same thing. He was trying to tell people that the mission of his life was not to keep God far, far away, but to bring us very close to him. That was the whole point of his ministry, was to close the gap between us and this God that seemed impossibly far. Just a brief word to the men in this room. Whether you're a father now or you plan someday to be, I want you to know that we as fathers 
permanently touch our children's lives so that for the rest of their earthly lives, they will instinctively feel about God things that they feel about us. And God can overcome that, but it takes a while. So if you grew up thinking of your dad as weak, unable to protect you, distant, unattentive, disinterested in you, angry all the time, never let a single mistake slide, if that's the the ideas you had about your earthly father, I promise you all your life, you will instinctively feel those things and, and project those onto your heavenly father. But if you are a godly father and you redeem what that means to kids, to your kids, what a privilege to shape forever an openness in your child's heart for who God the Father is. And I just want to give that as a brief word to you men, especially. If you're still raising young children, don't wait till tomorrow to reflect on this and change. Start today thinking how powerfully you're shaping your child's heart regarding what a father is. There's a second dimension found in this prayer that should be a part of every prayer, not just intimacy, but this aspect of surrender. And and that's found in these words, your kingdom come, your will be done. If you were to describe prayer in a single word, what word would you choose? I think for most of us, and probably rightly so, we would say prayer should be a conversation. We take turns talking and listening, and in the ideal sense, I think that's what prayer should be. But if we're brutally honest about it, prayer for most of us, I think, is more like negotiation. Or maybe even, in the extreme cases, more like a a wrestling match. A wrestling match. And here's what I mean. When we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, what we're really saying, what we're verbalizing is, God, you have a will, and I'd like to know what it is. Will meaning something I want to see happen on this earth a desire, an agenda, you have one, and I want to know what it is. But at the same time we're asking that, the truth is we also come to him with a will of our own. That's a powerful and beautiful thing. Aren't you grateful that God didn't produce a bunch of robots, but that he gave you the choice to follow him or disregard him, to listen to him or ignore him? You have a totally free will. He cannot make you do anything because he gave you the gift of freedom so that you choose to do things and you come to him in every engagement, even though you're saying, I want to know your will. The very second you're asking that, you have a will of your own as well. So here's what's really happening when we pray this prayer is, God, I come to you with an agenda of my own. But what I'm asking here is, I want to know what your agenda is. And in the end of the day, because you're a good heavenly father, I want your will to trump mine. I want to surrender myself to what you plan to do here because I have a plan, but I have a sense that my plan won't end up bringing me to the same place that your plan will. So I want to ask you a question. In your life decisions, big and small, are the decisions in your life primarily the result of your will or surrendering to God's will. And I'm not talking about just the big decisions, who you marry, where you work, all of that. But I think even in the smallest decisions, let me give you a practical one that I just thought of this morning. I don't, I don't know why, but like what time you come to church, right? I'm not trying to scold you. I'm trying to walk you through an actual thought process. There are a lot of reasons why we might be tempted to come to church a little bit later. We might find the beginning part of the service difficult, distracting. You might have little kids, and it's next to impossible to find your peace. And you're thinking to yourself, if God wants me to connect to him, I don't do that in the first half hour. So I'd rather come after that part's done and really focus on him. And I get that. I'm not even arguing with you or criticizing that viewpoint. It makes all the sense in the world to think that way. But in a decision as small as what time you come to church... And something as insignificant as a 30-minute increment of your time, do you reach that final decision because of your thought process and logic or because you've asked God what he would like you to do? You see, I'm not trying to manipulate an outcome. 
I'm, I'm taking something that's just very real, it's very in the trenches for us, and say, in every decision of our lives, is that how we function? I'm going through it right now. As I, my car is going to die any day now, and I'm wrestling through the purchase of a new car. And i got to tell you, as I share with my small group, I've agonized for like three months over whether I should get a Honda Accord or a Honda Civic. For most people, that's an insignificant decision, but it's become for me like the defining decision of my earthly life. It's become so huge to me. And I'm grateful for the struggle because what I'm realizing is God is trying to bring even seemingly mundane decisions into the realm of his authority. And the reason it's been a struggle is because God wants me to get a Civic and I want to get an Accord. We're just not agreeing. And I... I So I'm still negotiating with God, even though the answer is writ large in the wall of my heart. If you see me driving an Accord, a new one, to the church parking lot, disrespect me just a little bit. Because that car will represent for me personally, my life, a small act of rebellion. Of saying, I don't surrender. Because doggone it, I'm nearly 50 years old. I'll be darned if I'm going to drive a college student's car. I work hard for a living. I I deserve at least a six-cylinder vehicle. But you should know that if you see me pulling in with that, that at least for me signals in my life one loss in this desire for God to make his will greater than my will in my life. I have now really boxed myself in. Maybe that's a good thing. But even beyond the small decisions of my circumstances, this idea of surrendering to God's will is bigger than that. Because it doesn't just say, tell me what you want and I'll do it. It says your kingdom, your reign, your rule, your justice, your power, your rightness. I want to see it burst forth in the world. And don't you feel very much like every time you turn on the news, that's what your heart is saying? Look at the world that we live in. It is a Filthy, broken, violent, hatred-filled world. People don't seem to have any regard for one another. You you shouldn't get killed on a traffic stop or when you're out reveling at night in a nightclub. You shouldn't be watching fireworks and get run over by a truck. While you're trying to figure out who you are, you shouldn't have to endure the hatred of an entire society. You shouldn't be profiled because your skin looks a certain way. The world that we live in is so full of broken, messed up stuff. And at some point, we might try to contribute some of our... Because we're on the side of God when we look at our world and we're angry. We're discouraged. We, do you know the feelings when you watch certain news stories and you just go, I can't take it anymore. I don't want to live in a world that's like this. And the problem seems so big, you wonder, what can I do? Even though I feel indignant and angry over it, my expressions of anger in my small corner of cyberspace or in my circle of influence, what will it really accomplish against a backdrop of such broken, messed up, hate-filled lostness? And I think what Jesus is teaching us in this prayer is even beyond your personal circumstances, if you look at the world with open eyes, you realize how badly our world needs to see the kingdom, the rule, the kingship, the justice, the righteousness of God burst forth into our world. Our indignation and our anger is nothing compared to what God feels when he sees the state of our world. And if we're going to try to change it with our anger, nothing will happen. We will only add gasoline to the fire of mutual hatred and disrespect. This has been the ugliest election cycle I've ever witnessed in all the years that I've lived in America. I'm at a point where I don't even care who becomes president because it's no longer a meaningful office to me. And I don't think anyone is capable of listening to anyone else. And the problem seems so great. I think we're five years, six years away from somebody suggesting that we just turn the election into American Idol. Phone-in votes, popularity contests. I mean, that's where we're headed. And when I see all of that, I just want to give up. And yet Jesus teaches us to pray, not just in my small life, but in this place that I live. We need to see your 
rule, your kingship, burst into the scene. People will not treat each other with grace and love unless you burst into their lives. As they are, they will stay staunchly planted in their bigotry, their hatred, their violence, their brokenness. The only real solution for this broken world is the kingdom of Christ. And we need to learn to stop shouting at one another and cry out to heaven, God, your kingdom come. Have your way in this world. It's kind of surrender when I don't just give up, but I acknowledge that God's the only one in whom I can place my hope. I want to give you one last thing. It's this idea that every time we come to pray, there should be a, an aspect of dependence on God. Not just desperation, Not just, I hate my situation, do something, but real dependence. Like looking at him and saying, you're the only one who's going to give me. I'll wait. I'll wait till you give me what I need. He teaches us to pray, give us each day our daily bread. And at the most basic level, we're talking about physical bread. Like every day, what we need to stay alive comes from the hand of God And we need to learn that. Now, I know this. That's a very hard message to preach to a middle-class congregation in one of the wealthiest countries on earth. The truth is, even though we don't have everything we want, I can't see anyone in this room who's in danger of starving to death before next Sunday if somebody doesn't help. Is that right? So none of us are in such a desperate place. But I know that I've traveled the world and and personally met dozens of people who work way harder than I'll ever work in this earthly life. They toil long hours. They walk in the pre-dawn darkness for two, three miles just to lug back four gallons of water, half of it spilling along the way. This is just to stay alive. And as hard as they toil, their compensation is next nothing. They're left in poverty. And for people like that, when we preach the message, God, give us our daily bread, that has teeth to it, that means something to them. They feel the weight of this idea that God is my provider and tomorrow's sustenance, today's sustenance, it all comes directly from him. I won't be alive tomorrow if somebody doesn't provide for me. And there are millions of people on our planet for whom that's a daily reality. These words are heard very differently through their ears. For us, what are we meant to hear when we hear that our daily bread comes from the hand of God? No, it doesn't. It comes from Costco. Two loaves for five bucks. What do you mean from the hand of God? I just use my ATM card and I get everything I need. And we've lived that way for so long, not having felt physical need that's at a crisis point. But I think we as wealthy Americans still have something to learn from from this. See, I think our general stance is we would prefer to get everything we need up front so that we can disengage from the provider and walk on our own. There's a reason that when you win the mega lottery, they give you a choice. Would you rather get $25,000 a month for life or one-third of your total winnings in a lump sum cash payment right now? And do you know that the majority of people choose the lump sum of cash, even though they won $300 million, but you only get $100 million. That's like a massive slashing of your total winnings, but because it's all up front and it's all mine right now, and I don't have to wait for you to send me anything, I like that idea better. We would forfeit provision if we could actually have the freedom to be disengaged from the provider. That's human nature. That's our hearts. And that's often the way we pray to God. Will you help me in such a way that I don't have to ask you anymore? Will you help me in such a way that I no longer need to turn to you because it's annoying having to come to you every day acting like I need, I need, I need. And God says, if you don't have that need, I wonder, would you ever come to me? What, What drives you to God more than pain and need? When have you ever had such a good day? You said, doggone it, i got to talk to God. This has been such a fine day. I have everything I need. I'm so happy. Everyone likes me. God, I just want to spend an hour crying out to you. You might do it, but you probably won't. I probably won't either. 
But I know that every time I feel a pang of real need, of real fear, of real pain, the first thought is, who do I have? Where do I go? And it's my need and my recurring pain that most commonly draws me to God. We want God to give us everything we ask for up front and then get out of the picture. But God says, I'd rather give you everything you need for today and see you again tomorrow. Because I like it when you come to see me. I think it's good for you when you realize that I'm your provider. He was trying to teach the Israelites that lesson in their wilderness wandering, wasn't he? When they said, we're hungry, he said, fine, I'm not trying to starve you all to death. So he sends something they'd never seen before, something called manna. It tasted like coriander seed or like, like dough mixed in with honey. I, that's one of the first things I'm going to do when I get to heaven. Can I get me some manna? I just got to know what that stuff tastes like. I'm so curious. Right? And I'll, I told you before, my second request is, can I see Potiphar's wife? I just want to see how great Joseph's self-control really was. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, he sends his manna every single day. And what he says is, I will send enough that every day you can eat your fill. No one will go hungry. No one will ever accuse me of being chintzy with you. You're going to get all that you need every day. But if you try to store up extra manna and save it for tomorrow, you're going to wake up and find that it's riddled with maggots and smells of rot. What's the message there? God, what's with that? You're going to rain down food, and when we gather the extras, you're going to make it rot? Yes, because the point was not that God provides, but that God provides every day. What he's saying to us is he doesn't want to just give us everything we need and get out of the way. He wants to give us what we need for each day and have us come back to him so that we actually form a relationship of dependence. I don't think it's a stretch to say for us in America, physical bread is not nearly as important in this regard as what Jesus said when he claimed, I am the bread of life. See, our needs in America are not primarily physical. They're mostly spiritual and emotional. I have I've rarely spent two hours in my office talking with someone about how to get some food. In fact, in 20 years here, I don't think that's ever happened. I'm so hungry. How can I get some food? But I've spent many hours with people saying, my heart is ravaged with fear, insecurity, regrets, bitterness, worry, hatred, disappointment. There are so many things in my life I wish were different, and I don't know how to make these feelings go away. There are things that evoke a strong negative response in me. And when that's happening, I don't feel any power or control over it. I'm a mess. I I just feel like my life, my heart are controlled by things that I can't have power over. And I don't know how I'm going to make it through another day. With this despair, this fear, this panic that I feel. I don't know if I'm going to make it another day in my relationships. Because I feel so lost and dead. And nothing I've seen or heard makes me feel I have any power. What Jesus says is that's exactly what will drive us as Americans to come to him for our daily bread. When he says, I am the bread of life, what he says is, I myself am the saving work, the good news of my gospel, are the bread that you need more than anything else. Imagine that you had a terminal illness and that God in his mercy gave you a permanent cure. So now you are sick, you are doomed to die, and suddenly you are forever cured. You will never worry that this disease will end my life ever again. That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He secured a permanent cure, and here's the good news. That because of what he did, listen to me carefully, because not everyone in this room believes these words. Listen to me carefully. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, you and I who are in Christ will never, ever be punished again for the wrong that we've done. This is a a twist of theology most people can't wrap their minds around. I could walk up to Bobby right now and kick him in the face 
And that will be very wrong. I don't recommend it. And there will be consequences. Probably he'll kick me back in the face. I will be fired. I will be shunned by the community. There will be fallout. But the guilt that I accrue to myself for what I just did, I will not have to answer to God in punishment ever again. Because when Jesus hung on a cross, he hung there to bear on himself the full punishment, the justice required for everything I will ever do and everything you will ever do. That blows the mind. It's incomprehensible. It's almost unacceptable. That's why most people don't feel free even after the gospel because we've still done so many messed up things and we carry the burden of that guilt around with us saying, God's going to have his justice. I'm going to get what I deserve soon. What God did for us when Jesus died on the cross is he gave us a forever cure. That's the gospel once for all days. But here's the truth of the matter. Even though the the disease is no longer terminal, I still get a a daily flare-up, a rash. It left a residual mark on me. All those times I walked far outside of God's boundary markers, saw and did and experienced things that weren't meant for me, the echoes of that will still find itself in my life. I will get flare-ups. There will be ill effects because of all those things. And so every day what God says is, when those things happen, come back to me. Because what Jesus accomplished on the cross wasn't just once for all time to expunge your record. But every single day, he will also carry that rash, that flare-up for you. He will say to you, when you find that you're still afraid, still insecure, still bitter, still paralyzed by all those things, and you're not sure if you're going to get through another day, you come to me in that need, and I will make sure that you have enough to sustain you for today. When you're afraid, he says, I won't give you courage forever. I'll give you enough courage to make it through this day. And you're going to keep getting there and making it through another day because I'm going to be faithful every time you come to me and say, I don't have anyone else. This has such power over me. Now, here's the beauty. And I wish there was a gospel for cancer, for terminal physical illness, that it would be alleviated once for all time, never to return. Sadly, there's no such guarantee for this flesh his body but for the soul there is that there's a forever cure that even though you have the flare-ups of fear and pain and regret they don't signal spiritual death is coming back you are forever secure and alive in Christ and every day that those echoes quake your heart you let that drive you back in prayer and dependence to the only one who can carry you through another day Very few of us will worry about eating. But all of us are ravaged by the baggage we carry everywhere we go. And it won't be until we understand that that's where we go that we'll actually find real peace. I don't know what happens when you pray I struggle sometimes to understand where my heart should be when I sit before God. And as I've even reflected deeply on this, these two passages this week, my heart's starting to open up again, little by little. There's, I, I sense it. And it's like a little cloud off in the horizon starting to grow. This yearning, this, this dawning hunger to spend time with God. Not to get stuff, but just to be with the one who takes care of my heart. And I I want so badly for all of us to share that experience together, that during this series, you won't just cross your arms and hear true words and go, I guess I agree with that. I don't want that to be our response for this series. I want to ask you to join with me in saying to God, teach us how to pray. 
And can I just be honest with you? I think for a lot of us who have been walking with God for a really long time, we are dangerously bored of God. He hasn't excited us in a long time. And there's this weird idea that's been growing in my head that God is lonely. Not lonely like you and I experience lonely. But that we walk through our lives so mindful of ourselves and we only turn to God when we need something. And I think we're the ones who are poor because of it. What Jesus said is, I have a relationship with the Father that I want you to have. If you want to know how to pray, I'll teach you how to have this kind of relationship with him. Whenever you pray, you know this. You are talking to your daddy. And he loves you. He wants to take care of you. He wants to be kind to you. If you want to end up where you're supposed to end up, he wants to wrestle with your heart and say, you've got to surrender at some point. You can't fight me every step of the way. At some point, you've got to learn to just be still and let go. And he'll take you where you need to be. And know this, every single day, the gospel that was once for all time is also once for every day. Every day we need the gospel. Every day we need just enough hope, just enough strength, just enough love to get through this day. We're not going to make it. And he will give that to us. He'll be faithful. That's what prayer can be. And I want to ask you to open your heart to God in that way. Would you bow with me just for a minute? And uh, let's respond to the Lord. I don't know where you are in your prayer life. Maybe you're disappointed. Maybe it's not even an issue for you. But if it's been a long time since you found real peace and real joy praying, wouldn't you like to experience something new in your faith? Wouldn't it be a welcome change to stop feeling so far from God? I think for all who have invested their time and energy earnestly pursuing God, He's very kind and He meets us. So why don't we commit together, God, we want to come to you. We're done running away from you, dodging you, hiding from you. If you feel so led this morning, if God is stirring your heart, even take the risk of making a commitment to God that I want to begin sitting still and just spending some time being with you. Why don't we pray? I think I've said enough. Why don't we just sit before God for a minute? Just respond to him in our own hearts, in our own words. Let him pray for us.
you're having a hard time praying, just ask these simple words. Lord, teach me how to pray. Over these next weeks, even when I'm not in the church, do things in my life and teach me how to pray. Pray together. Lord, after all these years together and all the toil and effort and sacrifice, Lord, will you be horrified to learn at the end that this is the house we have built? Lord, we want you to build this house. And we want you to teach us how to pray so that you're the one gets the credit and the glory for everything. And we also confess, Lord, that we, many of us, just feel very far from you today. Desperately finding other things that make us feel alive, but nothing seems to be lightening the load we carry around. We eat and we're hungry. We drink, we're thirsty. Teach us to pray. Slow us down. Quiet our hearts. Draw us in front of you. Lord, teach us to pray. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.